started, I'm going to open in prayer, and uh, then we will be in Ephesians chapter 5. Let's pray together, folks. Gracious Lord and God, we thank you for this, your word, and as we come together, we pray that you would give also your spirit, that we would understand it. We confess that our eyes are blind, our ears are dull of hearing, and our hearts are hard. Uh, But you, O Lord, are able to give us life. You are the one who raises us up with Christ and seats us in the heavenly places with him. You are the one who saves us by your grace and gives us the illumination not only to, uh, to hear your word, but also to understand it and to believe in Jesus and find life. We pray that you would do that. Lord, as we speak today and, and study especially some of these ethical issues that Paul brings up, uh, we pray that you would give us grace to consider them, uh, that you would conform us more to the image of Christ, that you would not allow us simply to look at these things uh, and to go away as one uh, seeing his face in a mirror and forgetting, but make us, Lord, uh, both hearers and doers of your word. Help us, Father, uh, to trust in you, to walk with you, Uh, Help us to be your people and help us to love you more because of the time that we've spent together uh, in your body and in your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, A reminder of where we have come, uh, especially because we've got a few visitors with us. Glad to have you this morning. uh, We have been walking through Ephesians uh, and uh, at a pretty quick clip. So one chapter a week, we could easily spend several weeks on each of these chapters. Uh, We are resisting that temptation, uh, and we are moving through. So we we cover what we can cover, and we don't cover what we don't get to. We have made it all the way to Ephesians chapter 5, and that means that last week we saw what is the transition in Ephesians from all of the heavy doctrinal background to all of the practical implication of that doctrinal background. Uh, there's, uh, there's this major shift uh, in the beginning of chapter 4 uh, where Paul begins to apply uh, the words that he's been speaking of. And the recurring theme that we saw last week and we'll see again three times in this passage is the idea of walking, walking with the Lord. So we see in, in our passage today walking in love, walking as children of the light, and walking not as unwise but as wise. So we're going to see that continued And that's a reference back to what Paul said earlier in chapter 2 of Ephesians, where he spoke of of God raising us up, of giving us new life in Christ, uh, and saving us by his grace, not by our works, but saving us for good works uh, that he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Formerly, we walked in darkness and sin, and we were dead in our trespasses. Now we are called to walk in the good works that the Lord has prepared, and he's, he's spelling out for us what these good works look like. Last time in chapter 4, we saw uh, the issue of unity in the body, and the fact that as the church grows in unity and as we speak to one another in love, we grow up into maturity into Christ, and we also began to see this, uh, this calling to come out from the world, not to live like them in the darkness of the minds of unbelievers, but to live as people who have been saved and converted to Christ, uh, who have become new creations in him, and now are called to live differently because they are different from the world, though uh, what is in us is no different than the world at all. Uh, All of our change, all of our, our new behavior, all of our new existence in Christ comes from the Lord, not from ourselves, 
And so we walk in accord with what he's done in us, not in some attempt to make ourselves into something new. Uh, but, but often in the New Testament, in Paul, you'll see this dynamic of be what you are, right? So he starts with who we are in Christ and then presses upon us. Now, what does it look like to, to do that, uh, to live out the reality uh, of your identity in Jesus? We're going to see that continue today. Uh, these uh, ethical imperatives, as I mentioned, he's going to continue this theme of, of uh, living Christ-like, but he's going to get more and more specific. Uh, so he's going to deal in the first portion that we see uh, today uh, with, uh, with sexual immorality and sins associated with that. And then he's, uh, he's going to deal with uh, what it looks like to live according to the Spirit, not according to our own desires and the way that we interact with one another. And then he's going to begin in uh, a direction of, of dealing with even more specific commands as he talks, uh, particularly at the end of chapter 5, of the relationship between wives and husbands. This is the beginning of what's typically known as a household code. It shows up also in Colossians chapter 3 in the same, uh, same uh, divisions where Paul deals first with husbands and wives, then with parents and children, and then with uh, slaves and masters. Uh, and so we, we see sort of these three dynamics of authority and submission as they show up in a typical household uh, of, of the ancient world. And there are some parallels that we need to draw, uh, even though our households may not have all of the same uh, dynamics, we do still have the same authority structures, and we need to apply this well. And so we're going to uh, read Ephesians chapter 5 together, and then we'll come back and look uh, at the text. Uh, Ephesians chapter 5, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, who is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not associate with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light." For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful to even to speak of the things that they do in secret. When every, excuse me, but when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper. And arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, 
singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Thus far the reading of God's word. Uh, and uh, you will notice that we ended there at the end of chapter 5, although uh, the beginning of chapter 6 is very closely connected to the issue of wives and husbands, again in this household code. Uh, we're going to leave that until next week. Chris Campelli is going to come and teach uh, Ephesians chapter 6, and so we'll, we'll come back and see the second half uh, of the household code. But uh, what we've got before us today is a little bit different structurally than what we've seen before. Thus far in our study of Ephesians, almost every week, it's been helpful to take the whole text and divide it in half, and then take each of those halves and to break those in half again. So uh, two big parts, four mini parts. What's that? What? It's a quarter? Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. But if it were a sermon, it would be two main points with two subpoints each, right? Not, not parallel quarters, uh, but we've, we've broken it in half, and then each of those halves uh, gets another half. Thank you. Today, we're going to break it into thirds. Whoa! Three-point three sermon. Uh, three-point Sunday school. So you should all be really, really comfortable with this. Three points in a poem, and we'll be done. Um, uh, but the division is a, is a little hard to see, especially here in the text, uh, so you, you notice uh, verses 1 and 2 really are a transition. They almost fit better with chapter 4 uh, than they do with chapter 5, but perhaps we begin in chapter 5 with, because there's a therefore. So maybe that's why the chapter division was added that way, that, that there's this sort of conclusion in, in verse 1 of chapter 5, therefore be imitators of God, but that really is a parallel idea to the end of chapter 4. Uh, so, so there's a transition there, and then uh, if this was a, a three-point sermon, uh, we would take verses 1 to 14 together, and the heading would be the life of purity. We would take uh, verses 15 to 21 together, and it would be the life of the Spirit, and then verses 22 to 30 together, and that would be the life of the family. Uh, and so that's one way to break it down, but, but again, the division that we see in the text is a little skewed and a little hard to see. Um, especially when, when we divide between verses 21 and 22. Uh, verse 21 is also a, a bit of a transition verse. Uh, 
Uh, and in fact, uh, verse 22, and we'll talk about this w when we come to it, uh, in verse 22 in our English translations, the main verb is submit. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. But in the Greek, there is no main verb. Uh, it simply says, wives, to your own husbands as to the Lord. So it's taking the idea of the verb in the previous sentence. So even breaking between verses 21 and 22 uh, is a little bit difficult. What we actually see, and we'll, we'll talk about it when we get into the second main section, uh, is that the controlling idea is that of being filled with the Spirit. What does it look like? Well, it looks like uh, singing. It, it looks like giving thanks. It looks like submitting uh, and a few other things. But they all hang under this idea of being filled with the Spirit. How do we see Spirit-filled lives in families? Well, uh, in submission and love and, and, and some of these things that Paul pulls out. That, nevertheless, these are the three main uh, ways we're going to look at the text today. Uh, first, uh, he, he, he makes this specific command where he deals with uh, issues of purity, and then uh, where he deals with being filled with the Spirit, controlled and directed uh, in thankfulness and growing in mutual encouragement. And then when he, uh, he turns to uh, what it means to live and to look uh, like Christ as, uh, as husbands and wives. So with that in mind, uh, let, let's uh, get into the discussion here. You notice in verses 1 and 2, not only this idea of imitators of God, uh, but imitators of Christ. In fact, this is, uh, again, exactly how chapter 4 ends. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. So that is the touch point. That's our starting place for the way that we interact with one another. We ought to be forgiving one another, and we ought to forgive as Christ, as God in Christ has forgiven us. The same thing here, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacri uh, sacrifice to God. So there are two ideas here. Uh, the first is that of imitation of God in our Christian lives. And the second is that of love as sacrificial giving. See that? Uh, so be imitators of God. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Uh, and as we think about that, uh, where are the places in our own Christian lives where, where that uh, calls us to action toward one another? Uh, what are the things that, uh, you know, he's, he's pulling out a lot of uh, implications of this and he'll make it more and more specific. But as we think about not yet uh, husbands and wives, we can, we can see that sacrifice in a different way. In verses 1 and 2, he's still talking about the church, right? So what are the sacrificial ways of loving one another that you think Paul might have in mind as we imitate Christ's sacrifice for us toward one another? A clear enough question. What are the sacrificial ways that we ought to be loving one another in the church as we imitate the way that Christ has loved us? Think of any implications. Excuse me? You call on Jay? Uh, channeling. You're channeling Jay, okay. Uh, serving. serving, okay. Uh, in what sense? In what sense is serving sacrifice, and in what sense is it modeling uh, Christ's love? Mm. 
good, good. So, so another plug for uh, summer sign-ups for Jay. Uh, but I, I love that idea, and, and we'll need to come back to this idea. In fact, Paul comes back to this idea uh, when he begins to deal with husbands and wives. Uh, so when he gets to husbands and wives, uh, which is where a lot of the focus in chapter 5 of Ephesians typically goes, he's already preloaded the conversation. You notice later he says uh, that husbands ought to love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's the same phrasing that we find in what we're reading now in verses 1 and 2. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. And so the model that husbands are to have in loving their wives is the same as the model that believers are to have in the church. That is starting with a love that serves. A love that gives of oneself, uh, and, uh, and Scott raised the idea of Christ's model uh, where he says that I did not come to be served but to serve, to give my life as a ransom for many. And so it is in his serving, of course, uh, Christ through the sacrifice of himself, uh, but, but in our service we don't sacrifice our bodies, we sacrifice other things, other aspects. Dave wanted to add to that conversation. How does that relate to loving one another as Christ loved us and, and serving sacrificially? I agree with you that that's one of the things that Paul points out, and, and, and it's very important. Uh, and, and I think you're on the right track in the way that these ought to be connected. As, as you're talking, I'm thinking of uh, 1 Timothy. Um, 1 Timothy chapter 5 says, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Treat younger men like brothers, older women like mothers, younger women like sisters in all purity. And, and so it is, uh, it is a sacrifice in some way. It is service to one another, certainly, whether we want to call it a sacrifice or not, that we maintain an atmosphere of purity among the people of God, right? That, that what we uh, want to do sometimes in the sinfulness of our flesh, you get into a group full of, uh, of, uh, of people and, uh, and the conversation descends, into lasciviousness and, and into coarse joking and jesting. And we, we want to get those little things in there so somebody else thinks that we're witty too. Uh, we also can make those jokes and double entendre. And, and what we're called to do is to put those things away, right? To walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Why did Christ give himself up for us? We find it later in chapter 5. Yeah, and so it's the same idea here. If Christ gave himself up in love 
to, to sanctify, to wash his bride, to present to her to himself in purity, then one of the ways that we ought to be loving one another is to help one another grow in purity, right? We don't wash one another with the word and the spirit uh, and the water like, like Christ does, uh, but we, we help to keep uh, our conversation clean and our conduct clean. Good, good, I like that. Tim. Absolutely. Uh, and so, so conduct and speech and even the way as he, he gets later, he, uh, what you think about, uh, thought, word, and deed, right? Um, and uh, and he's, he's calling us to come out and, and be like our father, not like the world. Notice again the family language here, right? All the way back in chapter 1, the Holy Spirit is given to God's people as a guarantee of our inheritance, right? He adopts us as his children into Christ. It begins with the fact that we are his children uh, and then grows into the fact that children ought to look like their father, right? That, that uh, we ought to, uh, I know it's, uh, it's vogue in our culture to have this rebellious streak that I don't want to be like my parents if my parents were Republican, I'm going to grow up a Democrat. If my parents were Democrat, I'm going to grow up a Republican because I want to, I want to rebel. Whatever, whatever it is, any division, we can find a way to not be like the people who raised us. Absolutely foreign uh, to the ancient culture in many ways. Uh, and it was children grow up to, to take on the character of your parents, not just to look like them physically, but to look like them spiritually and emotionally and, and to... Uh, and to bring all the honor of, of your family name uh, in bear, uh, to bear on your conduct. That's the idea here. We are beloved children of God, and so we are to walk in the same way uh, that, uh, that God has called us to walk. And again, you notice all of the, uh, the family language as he goes on. He talks about the sons of disobedience versus the children of light, Right? Well, where does, where does this family allegiance, where does this uh, family, um, uh, not allegiance, uh, what's the word I'm thinking of? Family resemblance, no. Our family identity, where does it come from? Well, it comes from God, right? This is not the first place that, that family language has shown up. Uh, in fact, that idea of sons of disobedience comes from chapter 2, Right? Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. That is, we all, by nature, there is a family that we come into when we come into the world, but through salvation we've been made members of a new family. And so as beloved children, now as those who have been saved and joined to Christ, we ought to have a different family resemblance because we have a different family membership. Membership is the word I was trying to think of earlier. Jay. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, taking, taking another stereotypical cultural idea, right? Whether it's true or not, anecdotally, uh, you know, the child that desperately wants the approval of their father and tries to live in such a way that the father will finally accept them, right? Well, when the child knows that they're accepted, and, and notice that language, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. Not as kids trying to win the approval of their father, but knowing that you're beloved... Let that grow into an imitation of, of God's character, right? Emulate what, what you know is, uh, is true as a member of this family and as one who is beloved and, and wrapped into it. Good, I like that. Dave. Uh, and so this, this reminder, and we're going we're gonna to come back to these uh, sins of purity uh, and chastity in, in just a minute. Um, any other thoughts on just the idea of love as sacrifice and how it ought to show up among us? We don't sacrifice our bodies as Christ did, uh, but we sacrifice uh, our impure desires in the body. That's one of the things we've been talking about. We sacrifice our, our impure speech in the body to help maintain purity in the body. What are the other sacrifices we're called to give for one another in the body of Christ to show the love uh, that uh, God has put into our hearts? Jay and then Dave. Personal, how so? Yeah, so, uh, so growing into, uh, and here's, again, chapter 4, where loving one another, we grow into love. Sometimes that sacrifice is not enjoyable. But we do it because we're beloved children, we know what we ought to do. But as we do it, those things change our hearts, right? As we give of ourselves... Uh, we grow to love giving of ourselves, not just because it makes other people in the church think well of us, uh, but we, we, we feel and experience and grow into the love of Christ, and we can see that working out in us. And he changes our hearts as we do the things that he calls us to do, right? Uh, I don't feel like reading my Bible on a Monday morning. I don't feel like having my devotions. What should I do? I should do it anyway. And as I do it, the Lord will change my heart, right? Uh, and as, the, uh, as I follow him in obedience, he will take that obedience and grow me in Christian maturity and love. It's the same idea. So we give of ourselves time and convenience. Good. Dave, other things that we sacrifice?
Twice, yeah. Hold that thought. That's our, that's our next discussion. Any other sacrifices that we make for one another in the church? Cynthia. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I, I love that. Uh, so it's a sacrifice to forgive one another uh, because what we're giving up is the grudge that we could be holding, right? Uh, we're, we are sacrificing our own self-importance in that sense. I am not so valuable uh, that I can't overlook this sin against me. In fact, it's not even just overlooking. When you, when you think about sin... Uh, it's not just that God ignores our sin, he overlooks our sin, but he forgives our sin. So the idea in Isaiah 53 is that Christ is the one who bears our sin, that he takes them from us and takes them away. There is almost this idea in scripture that, that sin has this heaviness, this weight to it that has to be dealt with. It can't just be overlooked, right? Overlooking is not the same as forgiving. Forgiving reconciles and is willing to, or reconciles with the cost of the sin and is willing to bear the weight or that cost, to pay the cost uh, for itself. So if you uh, forgive your child for, for wrecking something in the house, that might mean uh, that you don't make them pay to replace it, right? They're older, uh, you, you might make them pay to replace it. You know, whatever it means. But you get the idea that, that forgiving is necessarily a sacrifice uh, for the person that we're forgiving because we're taking the cost of their sin and we are deciding to, to carry it and to pay it ourselves. Uh, Rob and then Scott. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. The, the other option uh, is, uh, is to grab me by the neck and strangle me and to say, pay what you owe. <laughs> but, but there even is the idea of, uh, of recognizing the cost of forgiveness. And you, Jesus uses it in that parable for a very important reason. You have been forgiven much. That is, the cost that you owed has been absorbed by the, the master. And so how foolish are we if we will not absorb the cost of the sins that other people have against us uh, it, is, it is to forget what Christ has done for us, uh, to hold those things against one another, but instead we ought to sacrifice. Scott, and then we're going to move to the, the second section. And, and in that, uh, the sacrifice, uh, perhaps for us, is not to consider what is the best smell to one another, but what is the best smell to the Lord. So we can continue that metaphor, right? Uh, what are the things we do in the body? Uh, and we talked last time about speaking the truth in love. And sometimes that involves having hard conversations, right? If we, if we want to be a sweet aroma to one another, sometimes we just try to be nice, 
and we try to be friendly, and we try to say things that make people feel comfortable, well, sometimes what we need is the sweet-smelling aroma to the Lord, which means a hard conversation. A hard conversation in love, truth spoken in love, uh, but sometimes it means uh, the sacrifice of having those hard conversations, of dealing with those difficult things, uh, and of being like Christ, but, but living to please the Lord, not just living to please one another. Good. One question from Teresa, and then we're, we're moving. Yep. How many times do you think you should have to forgive somebody? <laughs> yeah. It could, right? Which is one of the, one of the ways in which we need to understand um, forgiveness and also uh, consequences, right? The Lord forgives us, right? However, sometimes our sin has consequences. Right? And forgiveness and consequences are not, uh, not diametrically opposed. So we're, we're about to speak of sins of sexual immorality. Sexual immorality often carries with it its own natural consequences, right? Could be diseases, could be uh, any number of things, uh, relational uh, issues, uh, think of uh, sexual infidelity in a marriage can carry with it really dire consequences in a marriage, uh, that, does not, uh, that does not negate forgiveness, right? Uh, we can be forgiven for our sin, yet still have to bear the consequences of our sin, which is a, a strange uh, thing to think about. But what is, uh, it, when God forgives us, uh, what he takes from us is the eternal judgment, right? So we may have temporal consequences, but he takes from us the eternal judgment, right? And so how can we do that same thing for one another? Uh, well, uh, go back to the analogy of your child in the home wrecking something. Well, absolutely, I forgive you. I still love you. I reaffirm my love for you. But you need to take this seriously, so you do need to pay to replace that thing. Right? That's a consequence. And yet in that consequence, we can reaffirm our love uh, and, and the way that we, we deal with one another. This gets into really tricky issues and, and how do we navigate those things and which things are worth uh, attaching consequences and which things should we simply bear the consequence ourselves as a part of forgiving. Uh, and, and that really comes down to uh, what Paul is going to talk about in just a moment, uh, knowing what is pleasing to the Lord, living in discernment. It's not as easy always as a, a black and white and saying, well... Let's check that box here. There's a consequence. There's forgiveness. There's, you know, but a walking in discernment and trying to, to seek good counsel and having others help us figure out which uh, thing goes in which place. Really good question, Teresa. All right. So Dave brings up this idea. What's the connection between sexual immorality and impurity and covetousness? You notice uh, that this shows up twice in this section. Verse 3, sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Verse 5, for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. In fact, if you look back 
in verse 19 of chapter 4, the same three ideas are there, even though the language is slightly different. They become callous, have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Sensuality, impurity, greed, uh, the same three things. And they show up in three places in these two chapters. So what is the connection between these three, first of all? What do you think the logical connection is in Paul's mind? Why does he lump these together so often? Chief good. Yeah. And so, great. I agree with that uh, as far as it goes with greed and idolatry. Why uh, is it connected to sexual immorality and impurity in these three instances? So there they are together again, right? And, uh, and so what's the connection? Well, uh, in Colossians, he says these things are earthly. And that is a, a direct contradiction in Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. Seek the things that are above where your life is hid with Christ and God, right? You no longer dwell on the earth. It's, it's again, this dynamic of live out what you are, right? This is what you are. Your, your life is hid with Christ and God. Seek out the things that are above. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly. And what is earthly is sexual immorality, impurity, greediness, which is covetousness. Uh, and, and he adds those two other in there that I've uh, forgotten since you read the reference. Uh, but he puts them together. I think what Paul is doing is he's going beyond uh, the things that are easy to put your finger on, right? Well, have you committed sexual impurity? Well, I... You either did or you didn't, right? And we think of that typically in terms of actions. And he's going beyond that, almost as Christ did in the Sermon on the Mount, and he's getting to the heart of the matter. Where does sexual immorality come from? Where does impurity come from? It's from your greedy heart. Greed is not a sin you can see in somebody else, right? You can't look at somebody and know that they're greedy. You can't just watch the way that they're acting and know that they're greedy. You can be a very greedy person who has no money to spend, right? You can be a very greedy person with all the money in the world to spend, uh, and, and it doesn't necessarily match up uh, with your means in the world, but it's a heart issue. And Paul is pushing beyond just the things that come out, and he's saying this is where it comes from. And in the end, uh, he takes it all the way to idolatry. 
Now, an interesting connection there, uh, that when you look at the Ten Commandments, you shall have no other gods before me. Commandment number one. Commandment number ten at the end is covetousness. And he says, you could lump them all between these two. You know, uh, number seven, thou shalt not commit adultery, is sandwiched between idolatry and covetousness, and they all come together when it's manifested in, in the lives of impurity and, and uh, immorality. I think that's exactly what he's doing. He's, he's pushing us to consider where our heart is, not just where our bodies go, right? Uh, so a, a parallel question is that very often here in, in chapter 5 of Ephesians and in Colossians chapter 3 and in Hebrews 13 and in Romans chapter 1 and in 1 Corinthians uh, 5 through 7 and in so many other places in the New Testament, in the Old Testament, uh, there are all these sins that snare God's people, right? Uh, and, and you can think of the rest of, uh, of the ten, right? Lying uh, and stealing and uh, disobeying parents. But over and over and over again, the New Testament especially seems to be pressing on uh, God's people the snares of sexual sin and the need for sexual purity. Why does the scripture take that one so seriously and why does it push against those perhaps more than it often pushes against thieving? I know thieving showed up in the previous chapter, right? But the thief no longer steal, but it work with his hands. And it shows up in a few other places. But nowhere near as often in the New Testament do, are we told not to steal as we are told not to engage in impurity. Why is this uh, so persistent? Why is it so persistently pushed on God's people that we need to take sexual sins very seriously? Rob? Because we're so prone to them. Are we more prone to them than we are to thievery? Okay. Okay. Cynthia? Yeah, and so particularly in this Ephesians 5 context where he is, he's calling us, don't be like them, right? It's shameful even to speak of the things that they do behind closed doors. Don't become partners with them, but instead expose what happens out there. It becomes one of the chief distinctions between God's people and the world, okay? That's, that's a good thought, Rob. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Did you reference that one, Matt? Good. Yeah, so that's, that's in the 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 6. Uh, and there, particularly, it is uh, connecting with this idea of being Christ versus being the world, right? Uh, anyone who, who joins with a prostitute sins against his own body. And shall we take the body of Christ and join it with a prostitute? Absolutely not. So body there is sort of a double meaning in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 our own physical body, and also the corporate body of Christ, right? We sin against Christ's body. We sin against our own body. It's a sin that we commit inside of ourselves against ourselves. It's also a sin that involves other people. Very many of our sins involve other people, right? Um, but some of them we can commit all by ourselves, and, and in a sense it's a, uh, it's a victimless crime. If you're greedy... 
That will show up in, in certain ways, but you're, uh, if you're only greedy in your heart, it's a sin, but you're not actually stealing somebody else's goods, right? And so the victim there with, with the sin of greed is you. You're the victim. You are depriving yourself of the thankfulness that Paul is talking about here. Uh, but sexual sin is a sin against our own body. It also very often involves victimizing others and involving them in sin. And we can remember how Christ has, has spoken of uh, the, uh, the dire consequences of causing one of these little ones who believe in me uh, to fall into sin and what it would be better to have done to you than to do that. Good. Okay, any other? Uh, yeah, Cindy. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, so here's where I'm realizing we're not going to get to the husbands and wives, and I apologize, because that's where a lot of the, the good uh, material is in this chapter. Um, but there is a reference when, when Paul talks about Christ uh, in uh, verse uh, 26. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing so that she might be holy and without blemish. You're exactly right, that we are already married uh, to a Lord. And, and the reference, I think it was the ESV Study Bible pointed this out when I was uh, reading those notes, is likely to uh, Ezekiel chapter 16. Do you remember that picture there? Uh, he found Israel as a babe in the wilderness, abandoned, not even cleansed of, of uh, the blood she was born in, uh, and instead he takes her and washes her and loves her and spreads his cloak over her and provides her with all these things, and then when she grows into womanhood, he takes her as a bride. Uh, it's the same idea here, uh, that, that what Christ has done is that he washes us and cleanses us from all impure things to present us to himself. And so to go back and to engage in sexual impurity is very much like the Ezekiel chapter 16 where uh, I provided all these things for you and instead you spent all my gifts on your lovers. And there is a spiritual parallel there, right? There, there's no um, coincidence that in almost all pagan worship, worship and sex are intertwined all over the pagan world of Paul's day, all over the pagan world of ancient Israel's day, and I would add all over the pagan world of our own day, right? And as the adult Sunday school class and a bunch of adults sitting around, sex is that thing that, 
that we engage in that can make you feel almost spiritual. You read love poetry, you read, read Pablo Neruda or, or something like that. It's spoken of almost in existential terms, in spiritual terms. The experience of your lover uh, is a transcendent thing. And so no wonder in the ancient world, especially, and carrying over into our own day, uh, when pagans wanted to worship uh, the creation as it was manifested in themselves, they engaged in ritual sexual practices, right? This is, I think, one of, one of the reasons uh, that Paul does uh, go so often to sins of a sexual nature, uh, partly because they're wrapped in with pagan worship and idolatry. And that's why he moves from sexual immorality to impurity to idolatry, because they were conjoined. I, I think a good case can be made for the fact that they're still joined. Uh, I referenced this week in a private conversation with somebody else, the Ministry of Truth Exchange, truthxchange.org. Peter Jones is the leader of that ministry, and he basically talks about how uh, the new uh, sexual liberation in all of its very you know, manifest forms is new paganism. It's just a creature uh, worshiping creation rather than the creator. And how do we do that? Well, by personal sexual expression. And whatever you want is good for you, and whatever feels good is good for you, and that is your spiritual experience. You're not going to get a spiritual experience in church, but instead you're going to have this, this ultimate expression of who you are, not in relationship to the God who created you, but in relationship to your own body and what you choose to do with it. Right? There are still religious connections with sexual experience uh, and I think w we would be blind to, to not see that in our wider culture. Yeah. Uh, sorry, I went on a tangent there on, uh, on Cindy's comment. Um, but, but I think this is some of, uh, of what we're seeing here. And so uh, there are lots of reasons why the New Testament in particular comes back so often to these things uh, and to these three. Uh, and not only sins of uh, deed... Uh, but also sins of words. So you notice that between those two references, uh, verse 3, immorality, impurity, covetousness, and verse 5, immorality, impurity, covetousness, is this idea of our talk and our language. The immediate context uh, should show us that the kind of coarse joking Paul is talking about here is that filthy speech, the sort of uh, locker room talk, as it's sometimes called, uh, dirty jokes and things like that. Uh, and Paul says the antidote for that kind of speech and behavior uh, is thanksgiving. Uh, did you notice that uh, verse 4? Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. The same thing shows up uh, down below in verse uh, 17. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, and do not get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery. Uh, debauchery, very closely related to these sins that we're talking about, and the fact that drunkenness often leads to these other sins, uh, whether in speech or in deed. Uh, do not get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. How is thankfulness, which shows up twice in this passage, how is thankfulness the antidote to these other sins that Paul is talking about? Dave, and then Rob, and then Landon. Did I see a hand? 
Should we go in reverse order? Dave and Rob and Landon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So even the idea of Thanksgiving uh, involves, uh, as a sort of foundational principle, that there is someone to give thanks to, right? Not just uh, the, the incantations that you've figured out and the, uh, the elemental principles that you have worked together and produced by your own efforts. Good, good. So it, it takes us back to uh, the God who's made us and not only what we do with ourselves and our own desires. Rob? You deserve more than what God is giving you, right? And it's, it's idolatrous, and it takes us all the way back to the garden uh, that what we want is whatever the Lord has withheld, you know? You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened. Oh, well, I can have something that God hasn't given to me, open eyes. And by the way, it looks good, and it will taste good, and it will be uh, valuable for knowledge. So she saw, she, she desired, she took, she ate. Right? Uh, instead of starting with thankfulness for where she was and what God had provided, uh, she and Adam with her uh, took what had not been given to them. And, and uh, yeah, the, the connection there between thankfulness and idolatry is, is very close. Did you want to add to that? Okay. Landon. Yeah, yeah. so if we are pressing beyond just the things that show up on the outward, but pressing to the heart issue, uh, then how we deal with that heart issue, both covetousness and idolatry, uh, and, and idolatry is expressed in covetousness, uh, what we need to do with that is instead turn to the Lord and render thanks to him. Right? It's dealing with the heart issue uh, before it gets to uh, the outward issue. It, it is seeing that God has provided what we need, uh, and he has put us in a place that is good and given us what is necessary. Uh, and so it guards against wanting those things that he hasn't provided for us. Good. Cindy. I love that. So I have this quote that I found this week as I was studying from Walter Leffield. Uh, he says, Thanksgiving not only expresses satisfaction, but in a sense can even create satisfaction within us. This is exactly what you're pointing to through Asaph. I was envious of the wicked until I entered the house of the Lord. Right? Uh, worship 
uh, is not only foundational for our Christian living, worship is transformational for our Christian living, right? Worship creates worshipers. As we come to worship the Lord together, he does a work in us, right? As we read his word, as we humble ourselves before him, as we learn to express thanksgiving, our hearts are changed by the working of his spirit. He's, he's pleased to use that as a means of his grace to draw us to himself. And so uh, what you're pointing out, exactly, yeah. Uh, and, and so it, it comes back to that question, well, if you don't feel like doing what the Lord calls you to, what should you do? You should do it. Uh, and as you do it, uh, the Lord leads you not only into obedience, but into love and, and obedience from a glad and thankful heart. Good. We're out of time. Uh, we didn't touch the controversies. I avoided them, as I always do, by simply dragging my feet and going very slowly through the text. Uh, so if anyone would like to talk more later about submission and authority and headship and all those other things, uh, grab me and, and let's talk about that. Uh, and uh, I hope that could be a, uh, a good conversation. But uh, Chris Campelli is going to pick up in chapter 6 next week. Uh, and in some sense, uh, it's going to need us to have understood the section that we're not covering today. Uh, so go back and read uh, and understand what Paul is saying uh, about husbands and wives and Christ in the church and be ready for children and parents, bond servants and masters, and then uh, the Christian in complete armor. Uh, let's pray together. Gracious Lord, we thank you again for your word. Uh, maybe not for those in the class, but from where I stand, it's another hour that's gone very quickly, uh, and quickly because we're seeing wonderful things from your word. Uh, we pray that you would cause us always to delight in what you have to teach us, always to rejoice in growing in wisdom and discernment, in understanding what the will of the Lord is, what is good and righteous and pure and true. Help us, Lord, uh, to have hearts of contentment, help us to have hearts of thankfulness, and keep us from every impurity. Uh, in thought and word and deed, and keep us walking with you uh, in righteousness. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.